Good morning, and thanks for joining us online. We are in the middle of a series entitled Calling. We're talking about the ways in which God has called on men and women, young and old, new believers and veterans of the faith alike, to do his good work in this world. And through this series, I hope that you'll be encouraged to seek God more deeply and listen more carefully to how he might be calling you to do something good in this world. Today, we're going to be talking about the book of Esther in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew scriptures, we learn about this young Jewish girl who did some amazing things following after God. And if it's been a while since you've heard this story, I hope we can take some time to go through it together to relive some of the drama that's in the Hebrew scriptures. So we're going to do several things today. I'd like to walk through the story itself. Then I'd like to talk about two insights that we learned about calling from the book of Esther. And then I'd like to close with some time for prayer and personal examination as, as we listen more carefully to how God might be leading us in this moment. So let's turn to the book of Esther. There's several parts of the story that are really important to understand about Esther. And the first thing is the setting. The setting of the book comes in a period of history called Israel's exile. So God had made a covenant with his people, but over repeated failures over many generations and over a number of different warnings by prophets, God allowed his people to be conquered by foreign nations. The spiritual failures that led up to this point in history were pretty heavy. They were big. Uh, the people were worshiping idols. They were mistreating vulnerable people. And in the process of exile, when the Babylonians conquered the, uh, the nation, the brightest and the best were carried far away to live away from home, and they were made to serve Babylon. Now, the exile brought up many spiritual questions for the Israelites, including whether or not God was still going to be for the Israelites. Was God still going to be good on his promises? Would he still honor the covenant despite their failures? Now, the book of Esther is unique in all the while because it never explicitly names God, but it is a unique a literary device that's used by the author to help all readers recognize that God is still present, even though he's not named. God is present in his handiwork. Through his work, we recognize that his spirit is still moving things. And we'll talk about that more as the story progresses. Now, there are several characters in the book that I need to introduce you to. The first is King Xerxes. He's named in the very beginning in the opening chapter of the book of Esther. So the king is very powerful. He, he is ruling over a large nation. And he throws a celebration that lasts for 180 days. It's a party unlike any other. It's extravagant. It's made to show off his power. And after this 180-day banquet, he has another one, a short one that lasts for a week. And at the end of the week, when he's filled with too much alcohol, he calls for the queen to come so that he can show her off to his court. And 
during this time, in a stunning turn of events, she refuses him. This makes King Xerxes, the Persian king, uh, very upset. He doesn't know what to do. He calls his elders, his council together, and together they decide that they will find a new queen. Now, enter two more characters into the story, Esther and Mordecai. They are two Jews living in exile under the Persian Empire. Esther is a Jewish woman living in this time, and her parents have both passed away when she was young, so she was adopted and raised by her cousin, Mordecai. And Mordecai is essentially her dad. When King Xerxes decides to look for a new queen, he has women gathered from around his kingdom. Esther is one of them. The women are given a royal beauty treatment. They are taught the royal protocols, how to behave properly in the king's court. And out of all the women who are brought before the king, Esther wins the king's favor. She makes the biggest impression. She is crowned the new queen. She is an orphan Jewish girl living in exile, and she becomes the queen in King Xerxes' court. Now, there are two key points to understand in her story at this point. Esther, first of all, is Jewish, but she hides her identity. She hides her ethnic identity. It was dangerous at that time to reveal that you were part of the Jewish nation because uh, many people hated the Jewish people and they wanted them dead. So we learn that later in the book of Esther, and that's true during this early stage in the story. Mordecai has taught Esther to hide her identity, and that will become important later as we progress in the story. The second point that's really important to understand about the story is that Mordecai one day is among some of the officials in the king's court. He overhears a couple of the king's officers who are talking, who are upset with the king, and they devise a plan to kill King Xerxes. Now, Mordecai hears all of this, so he goes over to Esther tells her about this plot. Esther tells the king, and the king has an investigation and indeed finds and discovers that this is true, and the plot is unraveled. Mordecai saves the king's life. Now, we'll get back to that point later on in this story. The fourth character that we need to introduce in this story is Haman, and Haman is second in command to King Xerxes. He is powerful. He is successful. He has worked his way up in the kingdom, and it is commanded that people should bow down and respect Haman. Now, everyone does this except for one person in particular, Mordecai. Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. Now, None of this is explicitly stated in the book of Esther, but it is commonly known uh, among the readers and people during this time that the Jewish people did not bow down to foreign gods and idols, and they certainly didn't bow down to people who propped themselves up as gods. So you may be familiar with the book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends wouldn't do this. Neither would Mordecai. So when Mordecai is ordered to this, no, he will not bow down to Haman. Now, Haman is, again, successful in a number of different ways, 
But even with all the success that he has enjoyed, the riches, the fame, and all the people who kind of worship at his feet, he cannot enjoy any of it because there's one person, Mordecai, who will not bow down to him. And this leads us to the main dilemma of the story. Now, the story kind of unfolds in two parts. The first part is where everything goes wrong. Life is really bad, especially for the Jewish people. Haman is second in command, and because he cannot stand Mordecai not bowing to him, he not only hates Mordecai, but he hates all that he stands for. He hates his people. So he devises a plan to kill off not only Mordecai, but all of the Jewish people. Now, Haman is crafty in a sense, so he approaches the king and he presents the problem in a certain way without actually naming the Jewish people. He tells the king that there are people in his empire who do not listen to him and who are rebels and they should be done away with because they won't honor the king. The king obviously thinks this is a bad situation, so he gives Haman the authority to go and get rid of of these people. So Haman now has authority to go and commit genocide. This is terrible. This is really bad for everyone. And Mordecai is, is in mourning over this. And here we reach a critical dialogue in the book of Esther. It's at this point where everything kind of comes to a focal point and we catch this important dialogue in the book. Esther chapter 4 Verses 11 through 17. Esther says, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's court, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is here nudging Esther and reminding her that there are greater things at play, greater forces at work. God has called her for this unique moment in time and her work is needed. Now, let's hearken back to the beginning of our series when we started with Ephesians, that God has designed us with good work in mind. We were made to do good things. And what Mordecai is doing is he is nudging Esther to know this truth. This is your moment. This is your time. You need to step it up. Your voice is needed. Our lives are at stake here. The response that we see next 
is absolutely filled with faith. And these are some of the most beloved verses in the book of Esther, because here we see her heart and her resolve. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Basically, here you have Esther saying yes to God, yes to Mordecai, and saying yes to her people. But this is no easy task. She is essentially breaking Persian law to do this. She is risking her own life by going to the king when she is not requested and asking for a favor. She's putting her own life on the line. And what's really significant are these words that she says. If I perish, I perish. She will go all the way for God and God's people. She will go all the way. She is that committed. And I think that example of faith is what Esther is known for and why she has inspired millions throughout history. A change now happens in the book of Esther, where everything was going downhill and everything was unraveling in the first part of the book and really headed in the wrong direction. When the people fast and they pray, when Esther commits herself to the way of God, well, everything begins to go in a new direction and God responds to this fasting and prayer. It first happens like this. King Xerxes tries to go to sleep one night, and he can't sleep. He's spinning in his mind with ideas, and he, he just can't seem to rest. So he calls upon some officials to come and read to him the history of his nation. So, like I guess a lot of people throughout history, he's hoping that reading at night will help him to relax his mind and maybe catch some Z's. But the opposite happens. In the middle of this reading, he learns about a story that he's completely forgot about. He learns about Mordecai. That one day, this man named Mordecai overheard a plot to assassinate him. And out of faithfulness, he approached the queen, saved the day, saved his life. And so he makes this commitment in the middle of the night, saying that when he gets up the next day, he is going to honor this man because he has forgotten all about him. He will make good and honor Mordecai. So morning comes, and the king sees Haman outside. He calls Haman in, and this is... This is rich with irony in the scriptures. He calls Haman in, who is ready to kill Mordecai, and he begins to ask him, what should I do to honor someone that has found my favor? Now, Haman obviously thinks it's him because he's second in command. He thinks the king loves him, so who else could it be other than him that's going to receive this favor? Haman thinks for a minute, 
How would he like to be honored? Well, he wants to be paraded around the city and honored and dressed in fine clothes. And as it turns out, Xerxes asks Haman to honor Mordecai in this way. Now, meanwhile, while this is happening, Esther is approaching King Xerxes and asking to be heard. The king hears Esther extends his scepter. She is not killed in response to all this fasting and prayer. She is spared, and Xerxes listens to Esther. Now, Esther invites him very wisely and very shrewdly to two banquets, him and Haman. At the second banquet, she reveals this plot. Someone has been trying to kill her people, and she asks the king to spare her life. She reveals in that moment that she is Jewish. She's a member of the Jewish people, and there is a plot by Haman to kill them all. So the plea from Esther is to spare her life. The king obviously had no idea this was unraveling and was going on under his nose. So Haman is arrested. He is put to death. And everything goes in reverse of what Haman had plotted. The Jews are elevated. Esther is spared. The whole nation is spared. And the king launches a decree that day saying that all the Jewish people are allowed to defend themselves. If anyone comes after them to kill them, they can take up arms and protect themselves. This is a huge victory for the Jewish people who are conquered and who are living in exile. And they have these rights given to them. Now, today's scripture was presented in more summary form. We had some highlights uh, I hope that you can go back and read it for yourself. It's only 10 chapters. It's not very long. It's a wonderful book, rich with irony and reversals, and it causes us to think about God's presence in our lives. Now, I want to talk about two insights that we receive from the book of Esther regarding calling and our own personal sense of calling. The first insight has to do with our ability to discern God's work even in the midst of very difficult and trying times. How do we know when God is present with us even if circumstances and events are all going in the wrong direction? See, one of the things that we have to wrestle with in our understanding and our relationship with God is this kind of default understanding that many people have in place. They have an oversimplified view of what it means to be in relationship with God. And the oversimplified kind of negative view runs something like this. When things go well, God must be in it. God gives us good things. And when God loves me, he gives me good things. When things do not go well, God must be absent. Or maybe he's punishing me. Or maybe bad things are happening to me because God is unhappy with me. Now, this bad line of thinking, this overly simplified view of God, is something that is really important to address. 
because it is one of those things that really check us out from really going deeper in our discipleship, in our walk. It cheapens our discipleship. One of the earliest books of the Bible, one of the oldest books of the Bible, is the book of Job. And Job deals precisely with this worldview. Job goes through a series of tragedies, and his closest friends come around him, and their working assumption is this. You must be wrong, or you've done something wrong, because all these bad things have happened to you. God is unhappy with you. You must be sinful. Now, it is the case that sometimes bad things happen to us because we are involved in sin, but just because life goes in the wrong direction, it doesn't mean that God has left us. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus confronts the same line of thinking, and he says this, Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Okay, yeah, they, they were secretly thinking that, right? And so Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. See, Jesus is confronting the same oversimplified view of God. Just because a tragedy happened to these people, it doesn't mean that God was more angry with them or that they were more sinful than the rest of the nation. It happened, and everyone, in a sense, is guilty in one way or another of some sin. So Jesus says, everyone is in need of repentance. Years ago, I was talking with another minister, uh, and these were in the early days of access when life was really tough for me. And this fellow pastor was going through a real rough patch with his family and with his ministry. And he was reading all these circumstances and coming to the conclusion that maybe God wasn't in this for him. That maybe God wanted him somewhere else because he had never experienced so much difficulty and hardship in ministry. And he was thinking about maybe giving up because, well, frankly, because the circumstances were so bad. Now, in this conversation, I objected very strongly because, well, honestly, I was in some similar circumstances. Life was really tough in the early days of ministry in planting a new church. It was really difficult. But you cannot come to the conclusion just because life is tough that God isn't in your circumstances or that God is not with you. There's nothing that follows from reading those circumstances. I mean, what if God is working out something deeper in you? What if God is working out something deeper in the people around you? What if through the struggle, God wants to work out something more beautiful in your life and in the lives of all those around you? Struggle and hardship and overcoming are all part of God's bigger plan for us. And this is precisely what we see in the book of Esther. Esther is against some really difficult challenges to the point of death. And she even says it herself. If I perish, I perish. But in the midst of this trial, we see a leader emerge. 
We, saw, we see Esther full of courage and full of faith, full of love for her people and for God. And she becomes a model for people throughout history. In the midst of struggle, we see that God can work something out that is more beautiful than anyone imagined. There may be some of you listening in today, and you're going through a big decision process, and you're thinking through things in your own life. And life is not easy. It's been tough. There have been a lot of difficult circumstances that you've had to overcome or that you are facing right now. And what's really important is to put aside that old model that says that God only gives good things when he's happy with you, and he only gives you bad things when he's upset with you. Just cast that aside. What we need is a discernment model that help that can help us understand what is before us. Now, big credit goes out to Pastor David Wu, who used to be on staff with us, as well as LTI, our, our, our partners in ministry. They've given us a lot of insight into a discernment model. And if you are looking for some added wisdom in this area, I would encourage you to attend David Wu's workshop in this or look up some of the resources from LTI. But I want to give you just quick two things to consider when it comes to discernment. Two things that are really important to helping you discern the call of God. The first is this. You have a very open mindset before God. You have to be honest and be willing and humble enough to accept and receive God's answer, whether it is yes or whether it is no, whether it is to stay and be part of something or whether it is to move on and go doing something else, whether it is to fight or whether it is to flee. There are adequate times and there are proper times for both things. And you will not know based on an oversimplified version of God. You can understand things through a discernment model. The second part of the discernment model that's really critical to understand is that discernment is done in community. It is done with people of faith. And in our faith village context, it is best done among people of faith in your church. It is not something that you do alone. You just hide in a corner and you find yourself trying to evaluate all your motives because we human beings have a way of deceiving ourselves. We're very good at that. And how do you provide a check, a check for yourself in that circumstances? Scripture is important. Prayer is important. But what you really need in the mix are other voices that can speak to you about the Word of God who can also pray for you and help you approach the Spirit of God with a little bit more honesty. There's a second insight from the book of Esther around calling that's really important. And that is, God's call is for all of God's people. God's call is for all of God's people. There's a mindset within many church circles that assumes that Calling is really reserved for people in ministry or given to full-time vocational work within the church. And that's oftentimes when you hear a lot more God talk or talk around the subject of calling. But scripturally speaking, really, 
The case isn't there to be made just that calling is reserved for a few. It is really for all of God's people. The concept of sacred versus secular is a tricky one to kind of sort out. Now, for certain, in Scripture, there are sacred moments. Moses one day is going through uh, the wilderness, and God asks him to remove his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. It's a sacred moment in which God is going to speak to him. He's in a sacred place in the middle of the wilderness. Again, in the New Testament, we are given the Lord's Supper, and this is a sacred meal. Jesus tells us to honor it. The bread and the cup are sacred elements designed to help you elevate your vision toward the work of God and his covenant with you. If you take in, take the elements in the wrong way, this is really abusing holy and sacred elements. And so there are certainly times in Scripture when we are called to recognize sacred moments. But part of understanding what's sacred and what's secular is, is really difficult sometimes. Like, for instance, when you think about sacred and secular music, I mean, what happens if music has no lyrics? Is it sacred? Is it secular? There are all sorts of gray areas in life, not just with music, but even with our work and what we do in life. And perhaps it's better to think about things in a whole new way. Now, let me explain this through my experience with calling. I am for certain called to be lead pastor at Access, and I consider this part of my sacred calling. I am called upon to shepherd, to teach the Word of God, to lead people to connection with God. I am here to help the church live more closely in the way of Jesus. That's my calling. But I also consider a sacred calling to be a husband and a father. My relationship with my family is a sacred calling, which I said yes to when I said my vows to Amy. And as I pray for my kids and I think about them, I consider this a sacred duty to be their dad. This is really, this really came home to me uh, in the younger years when my kids were just growing up. I came upon a quote during a workshop uh, and I was listening to a speaker talk about sacred and secular work, trying to dispel the myth that we should put a hard line of separation in them. And she was talking about the sacredness of family life. She quoted Martin Luther in the process. Martin Luther, in his book, The Estate of Marriage, writes it this way. Our natural reason takes a look at life and says, Alas, must I rock the baby, wash its diapers, labor at my trade? What then does the Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the spirit and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. When a father goes ahead and washes diapers, God with all his angels and creatures is smiling, not because that father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. So I share this quote with you today 
to help you think more carefully about this distinction that we often make between sacred and secular. The lines are a lot more blurry than you might think. What's critical and what's important in understanding what's truly sacred is being able to listen to the voice of God and know what he has called you to. God's calling is for all of God's people. And whatever God calls you to do, well, that is sacred work. Whether you're a dad changing diapers, whether you're a pastor giving a sermon, or maybe calling people to connect more deeply with God, maybe you're a teacher administering finals this week, maybe your students going through some of those finals, what God has called you to to do in this moment and in this time is sacred work. The important thing is for you to be able to listen carefully to what the Spirit of God might be calling you to do. So I'd like to wrap up our time today by calling us to a time of prayer. We're going to have some slides in a few minutes to help you think through that. Like us to spend some time in quiet, to just get present to the Holy Spirit, to read those slides um, that will come up on your screens, and just to spend some time in prayer. And I hope this will be the beginning of a deeper prayer journey that will lead you to more confidence in your calling with God. Amen. Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity. In Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus. Amen.